ومن أحسن قولا ممن دعا إلى الله وعمل صالحا وقال إنني من المسلمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولهما بعد we welcome you to another episode of our regular Tuesday Q&A. And uh, let's begin immediately. Time is limited always. Our first question, Brother Ismail from Malaysia emails and he asks a very standard question which a lot of us have. And that is that if uh, I do a full ghusl, he says, uh, but don't perform wudu, do I automatically get a wudu or must I perform a wudu either during the ghusl or after the ghusl? So the question is that does doing a ghusl automatically give you uh, the verdict of doing wudu as well? Or do you have to do another wudu uh, during or after the ghusl? That is the question. Now, uh, firstly, before I answer this question uh, from a technical standpoint, let me say that the sunnah procedure for doing ghusl, the sunnah procedure for taking uh, a ritual bath is that you actually do uh, a wudu within the ghusl. So our Prophet ﷺ, he would start his ghusl by doing a full wudu except for the feet. And he would do the full wudu uh, and he would be sitting down ﷺ. Then he would take some water and he would pour it on his shoulders and rub and scrub. And then he would pour a little bit on his head sometimes as well. And then the very last thing he would do once he had scrubbed his whole body, rubbed his whole body, then he would walk one, two paces and then wash his feet on a separate area. Because again, back then they wouldn't stand and take a shower. They would sit down and pour water on top of themselves. So our Prophet ﷺ would begin doing a ghusl with wudu. He would do a full wudu. Now, our brother is saying, what if you don't do wudu? Because it's not obligatory. No scholar says that you must do the wudu rituals within the ghusl. No scholar says that. It is sunnah. It's good. And we these days we're taking a shower, so the shower is coming on us, and we're just you know scrubbing ourselves, and then we exit the shower. And that is a ghusl. There's no doubt that is a ghusl. Now the question arises, our brother is asking, that will a full ghusl, without doing the wudu ritual, because again, if we did the wudu within the ghusl, we're fine. If we did the wudu after the, the ghusl, we're fine. But what if we didn't? What if we just took a shower and then we walked out and we wanted to pray? Does the ghusl allow us automatically to have the status of wudu? So to answer this question, I actually wanted to uh, give a disclaimer that, you know, this question sounds very innocent and simple. And yet behind it, there's a lot of complex methodology. And in fact, it is quite a, a detailed response that you get lost in the hermeneutics of how to get to this uh, answer. And many a times a questioner himself or herself does not realize that why is there such a variety of responses? And so uh, in answering this question, I hope that inshallah, you will understand just a little bit about some of the technicalities of answering even what is considered to be relatively basic fiqh question. And this also uh, leads us to another area of uh, commentary, and that is this overly simplistic notion that a lot of people have 
that I don't want to follow the schools of Islamic law. I'm just going to open up the Quran or open up the books of Hadith. And what does the Dalil say? What is the evidence from the Quran and Sunnah? Well, the reality is that this is a question that out of thousands and thousands of questions that demonstrates why such a simplistic answer will never, such a simplistic paradigm, excuse me, will never give you an answer. The Quran and Sunnah does not explicitly tell us if you do a ghusl, do you automatically get a wudu or not? That is something that is not found in the uh, uh, very, in the, in the explicit understandings of the Quran or Sunnah, uh, in the authentic Sunnah, I should say, there's nothing of this nature. There's a, a slightly weak hadith, but there's nothing of this nature. And that is why we go back to derived epistemology or what is called usul al-fiqh or how we derive fiqh from the evidences of fiqh, the methodology of reaching a verdict based upon the uh, evidences. Because here's the point, we need to extrapolate. We need to figure out the overall methodology, what is to be done when we are doing two actions, not exactly the same, and they are coinciding with one another. The technical term is tadakhul al-ibadat, tadakhul al-ibadat, or merging one act into another or over another. Doing one thing and you wanting to get another thing out of it. This is tadakhul, getting, uh, 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 making one into another. And uh, included in this concept, for example, is you know if you uh, enter the masjid for Salat al-Fajr and you want to pray the two rak'ah for Fajr and you also want to pray, let's say, the two rak'ah of Tahiyatul Masjid, right? Can you combine those two by praying one one set of two rak'ah, can you combine both? Or for example, if you haven't fasted the month of Ramadan uh, fully and you want to make the six of Shawwal, can you combine the niyyah of the making up the qada of Ramadan with the 6th of Shawwal? Or if you have the 6th of Shawwal, can you choose Monday and Thursday and combine the niyyah of 6th of Shawwal with the double blessing of Monday, Thursday? I'm not gonna answer those other questions here, but if you've ever listened to my Q&A or anybody's Q&A, you will see there's a spectrum of opinion on pretty much all of these issues because the concept of merging two niyyas or two actions into one and then seeing can we do this or not it is not something that is uh, that straightforward and it requires a much lengthier uh, discussion what action can be subsumed into another such that if you do it automatically the first action or the other action will be considered to have been uh, done so to get to now the answer to your question uh, so let's begin by stating that once again we are discussing the scenario where you have not done uh, wudu within the uh, ghusl. Because if you do wudu within the ghusl, then clearly you have done wudu and ghusl. We are discussing if you do ghusl without doing uh, wudu. And uh, of course, we're all aware that in normal or regular circumstances, doing a wudu will never give you a ghusl. Ghusl is higher, right? Ghusl is the entire body. So doing a wudu, if you, for example, are in the state of janaba, you've engaged in intimacy with your spouse, or the sister has finished her menses, she has to take the full ghusl. Obviously, in normal circumstances, if you're healthy and everything is normal and you have water, simply doing wudu will never give you the ghusl. But the opposite, doing ghusl, Will it give you wudu? This is what we are discussing. So first and foremost, let us begin the discussion by stating, what if you take a quick shower with the intention of cooling down, it's a hot day, you just wanna cool down, or with the intention of uh, just uh, rinsing yourself off, like it's your daily routine. As soon as you wake up, before you go to work, you take a quick shower and then you go out. Your niyyah was not the ritual ghusl. Your niyyah was just, look, I wanna take 
uh, a shower. In your heart, there was no action of ta'abud or ibadah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You didn't have the intention of, of ghusl. The intention was, hey, I just wanna put shampoo on my hair. I just wanna clean my body, feel fresh before I go to work. This scenario, the vast majority of scholars, there's a small dissenting uh, position within the Hanafi school. Otherwise, the vast majority of scholars would say that there's, there's just no question you haven't done wudu. You have not done wudu because you didn't have the intention of actual ghusl. You simply had the intention of cooling your body down, the intention of taking a shower. You didn't do the ritual of ghusl. So the default, if you take a shower or a bath, or you just jump into your swimming pool, and you don't have the intention to do ghusl, well then, as our Prophet ﷺ said, actions are judged by intentions. And you had no intention to even do ghusl, so then how could you get the intention for wudu? So that much, inshallah, it should be uh, very clear. Let's flip it around. Let's go to the exact opposite. Let's suppose that you did have the intention for ghusl, and that ghusl was obligatory on you. So after intimacy or after menses for our sisters. Ghusl is obligatory on you, okay? You must do ghusl before you pray. In this case, if you were to do ghusl with the intention of ghusl, the majority of ulama, and this is the default position in the, all of the schools of law, they say that you automatically get the status of wudu. If you do a, a ghusl, that is wajib on you, okay? So doing a wajib ghusl, the majority of scholars opine that you automatically have wudu. And their evidence for this is the verse of Surah Al-Ma'idah that talks about the wudu, that Allah Azza wa Jal tells us in the Quran how to do wudu. And then Allah Azza wa Jal says that, وَإِن كُنْتُمْ جُنُبًا فَاتَّهَّرُوا If you are in the state of Janaba, then cleanse yourself totally. So Allah is saying, do wudu, this is how you do wudu. Then Allah says, if you are in the state of Janaba, then do ghusl, which means, the verse implies, if you do ghusl, you have also done wudu. So based upon this, our scholars state that if you're doing the ghusl that is obligatory to do, which is after intimacy, which is after uh, uh, ejaculation, which is after the menses. If you're doing that ghusl, and you have the niyyah of ghusl, then yes, automatically you get wudu. So after you, you finish the ghusl, even if you haven't washed your hands and, and, and uh, done the madmada and the wiping of the hair, which is done in wudu, you don't need to wipe the hair, your hair is gonna be wet anyway. The point is that there's a tartib, an order that is done in wudu, right? So you wipe, uh, you, you wash the hands and the face, you wipe the hair, you wipe, the, you wash the, 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 the feet. That order is not gonna be done if you take a shower. If you just take a shower, you just, the water just pouring down on you. But if you have done the ghusl, that is wajib, we said automatically you get the upgrade and you have wudu. So as soon as you finish that ghusl, you can walk out of the shower, dry yourself out, put on your clothes, and automatically pray whatever you need to pray. That ghusl will give you the wudu. The main controversy comes, and we're not gonna go into all of the finer details, just summarize it and move on. The main controversy comes is that what if you do a ghusl that is not wajib, and neither was it just a shower to warm up or to cool down or to wash yourself. You do a, a ghusl that is, yani, uh, you know, the niyyah is I wanna do ghusl, but it's not wajib on you right now. In other words, suppose you wake up in the morning and it is your, you know, you wanna just take a shower and in your heart you're like, okay, let me this, this just do the niyyah of ghusl as well. Cause you know, you can do ghusl that is, you know, mustahab or mubah, you can do ghusl that is sunnah. For example, taking ghusl on the day of Friday, 
it is sunnah, it's not wajib, right? Uh, doing a ghusl before entering ihram, it is sunnah, it is not wajib, okay? Uh, so these types of ghusls are sunnah. And if you were to just take a ghusl at any time of the day or night, and your niyyah is ghusl, it's allowed, nothing wrong. I can take a ghusl as soon as I wake up and I don't need to take ghusl. So what if you do that type of ghusl? It's not wajib, and you had the niyyah of ghusl. This is where we get some you know, controversy, I would say maybe 50-50, you, know, you get that, 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 that contention over here, because the, the contention is that doing the wudu for salah is obligatory. However, your ghusl that you have done that is not obligatory, it's sunnah, it's mustahab, it's mubah. So in this case, they said, because the wudu is obligatory, you must follow the procedure for wudu. Otherwise, one group of scholars says, your ghusl that was sunnah will not get you the upgrade of the wudu that was wajib, if you get my point here, okay? This is a, a, a large position. I'm not gonna say majority or minority. We can say that 50-50% of the scholars are uh, like this. And uh, uh, the default of the Hanbali madhab and the Maliki madhab, and the position of many of my own teachers, Ibn Uthaymin and others, is that such a ghusl does not give you wudu. A ghusl that you do for the sake of whatever other reason that you are not in the state of Janabah and you do not perform wudu within that ghusl, a sunnah ghusl, a mubah ghusl will not give you the fard wudu. So if you do such a ghusl and then you walk out of the shower and you want to pray and you realize, oh, I did have the niyyah for ghusl, but I didn't do the order because wudu has an order, right? Wudu has a specific order. Yes, the limbs are wet, but just like if you stood in front of the sink and you start, started with your feet and then you washed your hands and then you did your, your hair and wiped your hair and then you know you did the face, that's not wudu, you messed up the entire order. So too, this group would say that if you're doing a sunnah ghusl, then you don't get the fard of the wudu. Unless you're doing the fard of the ghusl, in which case, because that is a blessed ritual, because that's an obligatory ritual, and because Allah says in the Quran, if you are in the state of Janaba, then do ghusl, which is Allah is indicating that ghusl will give you wudu. So this group of scholars says, any other ghusl will not give you wudu. Uh, you should be aware that other madhahib, the Hanafi school generally speaking, and the Shafi school, and again, there's dissenting voices in all of them. This is an issue where you will find dissenting voices even within the schools. That the Shafi school says even a sunnah uh, or a mustahab, yani ghusl, it will give you wudu, no problem. And the, the Shafi school is generally the most tolerant of combining any type of ghusl in order to give you uh, wudu. So the bottom line, my advice uh, to you is to get out of the controversy. If you are uh, doing the ghusl that is obligatory, no problem, you have wudu. However, if you're doing a shower, a ghusl for any other reason, then I encourage you to follow the sunnah, which is that even while you're standing in the shower, take it'll take 10 seconds or less. Just quickly do a symbolic wudu, symbolic because the water is showering on you anyway, right? you don't have to do anything much. Just do a symbolic wudu, you just wipe yourself in the order of the limbs of wudu, and then you would have done the wudu, and so you're out of the controversy, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Uh, we have a, a second question here, uh, which is, a uh, deep and philosophical one. And this is from Sister Sophia. She asks uh, that, uh, do we as Muslims believe that Allah Azza wa Jal has forbidden evil because it is evil? Or 
does it become evil because Allah has forbidden it? Okay, the question once again is that when Allah forbids something, does He forbid it because it is evil? Or does it become evil because He has forbidden it? Okay, this is our sister's question. Now I have a feeling that our sister uh, is taking a philosophy class and uh, she is wanting to ask this question from an Islamic perspective because this question is one of the fundamental questions of Western philosophy. And Western philosophy has spent a lot of time and a lot of their great minds have spent many tomes and monographs and uh, books and treatises on this uh, discussion. And it is a very detailed discussion that deals with the co topic of moral epistemology. How do we know what is morally right and wrong. And uh, uh, this even goes back to Plato uh, and his dialogues, uh, Socrates, uh, with uh, a person by the name of uh, Euthyphro. And Euthyphro uh, is the person, he's having this dialogue uh, with, um, uh, uh, with Plato. And uh, there's an entire treatise in Plato's, in Plato's writings, you can read this if you ever want to do that. And the question is that what is uh, what is it that pleases the gods? Again, they believed in multiple gods. Is that, is it pleasing, is good pleasing to the gods because it is good? Or because the gods love it, it becomes good? In other words, it's just a chicken and egg question, okay? And it's a very interesting philosophical question. Uh, and so to, to, to make it understandable, suppose there is a tribe that has not heard anything of Allah and His Messenger, there's no revelation that has come down. This tribe is cut off from Allah's revelation for a period of time. They've never heard of Islam. Does this tribe, is it obliged by Allah to know good from evil? If the tribe is engaged in murder, raping, plunder, are they sinful? Because they don't have the sharia. Or are they forgiven? Because they don't have the sharia. Should they know that certain things are evil? Even before the sharia comes. Because if we say they should, this means that good and evil is independent of the sharia or do they acquire knowledge of good and evil via the sharia such that until the sharia comes they're excused because they don't know good from evil and so this is a question that does have some practical relevance in terms of how we look at people whom the sharia has not um, reached now this question uh, is one that has uh, been discussed by our own uh, Muslim sects and Muslim schisms and Muslim theological groups since the beginning of time. And you know, if we had an advanced class, we could go into all the different groups out there, but we just wanna summarize for you what some other groups have said. And so we've had certain groups that emphasize the role of the intellect and the role of the, uh, the philosophical tradition more, such as the actual philosophers of Islam and also the group called the Mu'tazila. Uh, the Mu'tazila were a group that uh, generally speaking, uh, they generally speaking, they considered the mind to, to be the main source of human knowledge. And the Mu'tazila said that matters are either good or bad intrinsically. And we should know something to be good and something to be evil even before the Sharia comes. So they argue, we all know that justice is a virtue. We know it to be good. We know murder to be a vice or evil. We know that telling the truth and being honest is good. We know that stealing people's property is evil. And so they argued that even if a civilization never heard of any revelation from Allah, even if Allah did not tell that civilization, that civilization is still obliged to know good and then to act upon that good.
and they said that our intellects are qualified to judge and our intellects have the, uh, the capacity to know good from evil. So they argued that good is good and evil is evil independent of Allah Azza wa telling us that or not. This is the Mu'tazili uh, position. There's another classical group uh, called uh, the Maturidiya, which is within the fold of Sunni Islam. And uh, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, from the Athari perspective, was very similar to this, but he modified it as I'm gonna mention. So the Maturidi school and some segments of the Athari school, uh, especially Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, uh, they said that Allah Azza wa created concepts that are with intrinsic values of good and evil. But the intellect is qualified to unveil those concepts and understand whether something is good and evil. So good and evil, Allah created it within these concepts and the mind is able to recognize good and evil, but it is the sharia that has the final veto. It is the sharia that lays out the actual realities and it might correct a mistake of the mind. So the intellect is generally collect, correct, but it is not infallible. So they gave the intellect a role that is less than that of the Mu'tazilites, but they still gave it a role. And they said the intellect can disertain and verify the generalities of good and evil as long as it applies the right methodology. This is another position, and it is the position of uh, the Athari school and also the Maturidi school. The Ash'ari school, uh, they wanted to give the most prominence and the power directly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and strip really any you know, efficacy, if you like, uh, to the mind. And so what they, in this regard, I'm saying into the, in this regard. And they said that concepts and actions in and of themselves do not acquire good and evil until the Sharia comes with those descriptions. So the intellect in and of itself is not qualified to know. And that the concepts of good and evil, they are linked to what Allah says. So they would argue, murder is not intrinsically evil until Allah says it is evil. Once Allah says it is evil, then it becomes evil. It acquires the adjective, if you like, the characteristic of evil after Allah says it. And justice is a virtue because Allah told us it is a virtue, okay? Otherwise they said, it is not, the mind does not have the right to judge anything. And they say, if the divine law wanted, it could flip it around and it could make murder a virtue and justice a vice because that's something that the mind is independent of. Now, as we said, there is a, uh, an area where this controversy comes into light, and that is that what will be the fate of a nation who has never heard of the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Mu'tazilites said that if a nation who had not heard of Allah acted unjustly and practiced paganism and murdered and raped and plundered, that they will be punished even without a messenger coming to them because their mind should have told them what is good and they should have followed that good. The exact opposite is the Ash'arites. The Ash'arite school said that if revelation had not come to a nation or the message of the prophets came in a corrupted manner, that that nation is de facto forgiven by Allah and they're gonna enter Jannah. 
And Imam al-Ghazali famously wrote his book called Faisal al-Tafriqa, Bain al-Islami wa Zandaqa. And in this book, he categorized people into a number of categories. And he basically said that anybody or any group that has never heard of Islam, or that they have a distorted image of Islam, they shall automatically be forgiven and they shall enter Jannah without any problem. Okay, now others have problematized this view insofar as it sort of privileges those that have never heard of Islam by guaranteeing them Jannah. And it puts it a little bit problematic upon the rest of us that we are not guaranteed uh, Jannah. So this is you know, some of the back and forth that has taken place. Now, interestingly enough, one of the main stories of the, uh, the Quran that is used in this regard by all of the schools, and it is a story that is found in the Bible as well. And so Christian theologians have also used this story in all of the various schools that they've discussed, is the story of Ibrahim and the command to sacrifice his son. The command to sacrifice his son. Now we all know the story at a superficial level. The problem comes that the command to kill an innocent child, some would argue, that that sounds immoral, that sounds not correct. And here we have this tension between all of these various schools. How do they understand the Abrahamic story? Because the philosophers, because the, 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 you know, the people that are deeply involved in this issue of philosophy and, and, and the prioritizing the role of the intellect, they will say that how could a divine command come that tells us to kill an innocent child? That is immoral, that is wrong. And they say, what type of God would command this? This cannot be true. And uh, there was one of the most famous uh, theologians of Europe of the last century uh, from, uh, uh, from Denmark. His name was uh, Soren Kierkegaard. He wrote a book called Fear and Trembling. And this entire book, which is one of the masterpieces of Western civilization of the history of uh, you know, Western philosophy, I mean, sorry, it is a manifestation of one of the masterpieces of Western philosophy of the last century, or actually to be, to be more precise, two centuries ago. Uh, Kierkegaard, he, in this book, he uh, attempts to explain, uh, attempts to explain, because I think he fails, but attempts to explain Abraham's tension that how could a just and loving God tell uh, this servant of his to sacrifice his son? What type of God would do this? He's trying to understand and rationalize. And the entire, so look at the title, Fear and Trembling, meaning Ibrahim is wondering, he's worried, he's trembling, he's, he's scared. And in fact, this, this notion obsessed Kierkegaard. He was obsessed with it to the point of, I would say that it, it caused a crisis in his own faith and his own understanding of morality and his own understanding you know, of um, uh, Christianity. Uh, so. According to that paradigm, it is highly problematic to posit a God that tells you to kill a child because that sounds immoral to that group of people. On the flip side, you have, you know, for example, the Ash'arid school, they would not find this problematic in the slightest. And they would say, if God commanded it, it becomes just. Whatever God commands becomes just. That is the definition of justice. That's the definition of virtue. Going back to you know, the, the question of Plato, what makes virtue virtue? What makes good good? Is it because Allah likes it or God likes it, it becomes good? Or because it is good, Allah likes it, okay? So the chicken and the egg question that, uh, that again is being asked by all of these philosophers. Now, interestingly enough, Ibn Taymiyyah, as it were, 
uh, he actually, I said his, his position is similar to Maturidism, but it's not exactly the same. And now you'll understand why. Ibn Taymiyyah extrapolated beyond the uh, rather simplistic uh, boxes of the other schools. And Ibn Taymiyyah, he said that not all concepts and actions are the same. Rather, he said, we can categorize actions and concepts into three categories when it comes to the role of the mind in understanding what is good and what is evil. We can look at the world and divide it into three categories. The first, he said, are most of what humanity deals with of virtue and vice, and such as murder, such as honesty, such as truth, such as justice. These concepts, according to Ibn Taymiyyah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created them and he put within them intrinsically the values of good or evil and he blessed us with an intellect and also a pure fitrah, a pure innate conscience, the both of which generally speaking are capable of recognizing and sifting good from evil. So murder is evil, it is evil. Allah created the concept and it is evil. We know it to be evil. Our minds and our fitrah, our human personalities, Allah has gifted us the perception to know that it is evil, okay? And then Ibn Taymiyyah argued, the Sharia comes and it ratifies, it stamps, it approves what the mind has already concluded about these actions. Nobility, honesty, chivalry, kindness are virtues. We all know that treating an elderly person with kindness is good. We know it. We don't, it, it doesn't need to be taught to us. It's something that is intrinsic intellectually and spiritually, psychologically, we know it. The Sharia comes and the Sharia affirms. As our Prophet said, whoever is not merciful to our elders, he's not one of us. So the Sharia ratifies what the intellect and the fitrah has come to the conclusion. However, however, sometimes, our minds are mistaken, not because, not because the mind is created wrong, but because the mind has been corrupted by the culture around us, but because we've been brainwashed by the societies we live in. And in this case, the Sharia serves as a correcting factor to the corruption of the mind. In this case, the Sharia comes, and even if our minds don't understand, we must conform to the Sharia, and the Sharia will always, Allah's revelation will always be paramount and it will tell us whether this concept is good or evil. So the final judge is the Sharia. The final ratifier is the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it comes to good and evil. This is the first thing and that is most of the concepts we deal with, that the good and evil is something that is intrinsic, Allah created it in there, okay? Unlike the Ash'arites who basically said it is no, there is no value, it is intrinsic and that the mind is capable but the mind is fallible and it is the Sharia that is infallible in telling good from evil. This is the first category of concepts. The second category, Ibn Taymiyyah says, are primarily the rituals and the commandments that deal with how we worship Allah. He said in this category, generally speaking, the mind plays no role in deciding what is good or bad. We, we don't understand, we simply obey. So for example, why is it makruh to eat with the left hand or maybe even haram? What, what, what is logical about that? Why is tawaf seven counterclockwise? Why is 
five fard prayers, two of them fajr, uh, and we read out loud, and four dhuhr we recite silently. Is there any wisdom in these commandments that we can understand? I mean, we can try to derive them, but in the end of the day, we really don't know for sure. If Allah had made the salah four or three or six or seven, we'd do it. We wouldn't know. If Allah had made the tawaf five, if Allah had put the Ramadan, sorry, the, 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 the Hajj in the month of Ramadan, let's just say if He had done that, it would have happened, we would have listened. In this category, most of which revolves around rituals and ibadat, Ibn Taymiyyah says, there is no intrinsic good or evil until Allah says so. So Allah says, eat with the right hand, it becomes an act of worship. Allah says, pray five times a day, face the Qibla, it becomes an act of worship. And if Allah did not say it, or said something else to another civilization, that becomes an action of worship. So for the children of Israel, facing Jerusalem becomes the action of worship. And for Muslims, facing Mecca becomes the action of worship. And if we were to face another Qibla intentionally, knowing that you know uh, uh, we're turning away from the Qibla, this might actually be a, a, a symptom of kufr wal-iyadu billah. It is Allah's commandments that made it good or evil. That's something that has nothing to do with one's rationality. That is the second category. And the third category, Ibn Taymiyyah says, the third category is that, uh, and this is specific only to the prophets, Ibn Taymiyyah says that this is a category where Allah commands something, but the desire or the intention, listen to this carefully, is not to see the command enacted, but to see the prophets put in the effort to get the command. So Allah Azza wa Jal does not intend for the command to actually take place, for the command to be executed. Allah only wants to see the prophets try to do them. And the wisdom here is to test the sincerity of the prophets. This category Ibn Taymiyyah says, the best example for this is Ibrahim salam being told to sacrifice his son. Allah did not intend for Ibrahim to sacrifice. Allah intended to test Ibrahim. And that's why Allah says in the Quran, Ya Ibrahimu qad saddaqat ar-ru'ya. O Ibrahim, you have fulfilled the vision that we have given to you. You fulfilled it. What we had, what, what we wanted you to do, you have fulfilled it. So Kierkegaard in all of his fear and trembling was for no reason. He didn't have to go down this entire avenue if he had read Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah clarifies 600 years before Kierkegaard, literally six centuries before Kierkegaard, Ibn Taymiyyah clarifies this theological conundrum for Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard it's a Danish name. And that is that Ibrahim salam was not actually tasked, i.e. Allah did not intend for him to go through with the task. Rather, Allah Azza wa Jal intended to test, and it only happens to the prophets. This type of test is unique to them. Any other commandment that Allah gives to the rest of mankind, we do it. For the prophets, sometimes Allah tests them to see their commitment and dedication and to raise their uh, ranks. By the way, also one point of uh, interest when it comes to Ibrahim alayhi salam, is that Allah did not actually command him verbally. This is a very interesting point. And Allahu A'lam, I feel that one of the reasons for this is because there is potentially, potentially uh, this ethical problem that Allah Azza only commands, you know, uh, with his speech, that which is just and that which is perfect. And uh, Allah Azza did not say to Ibrahim, O oh Ibrahim, kill your son. Rather, Ibrahim saw a dream. And in the dream, 
He saw himself raising the axe and his son is lying on the ground. That's all that he saw. And Ibrahim being a prophet realized that that vision is a real vision and it must come to pass. And so he put into process the enactment of what he saw. And he raised the axe up. And as soon as he did that, the image of the dream was the image of what Ibrahim was doing. And that's when, and he, Ibrahim did not see the knife coming down in the dream. Ibrahim did not see the sacrifice of his son. Ibrahim only saw the knife going up, the axe going up. And as soon as the axe went up, Allah Azza wa Jalla said to Ibrahim, Ya Ibrahimu qad saddaqta ru'ya. You have fulfilled the dream. That's exactly the, the scenario of the dream has taken place. Interestingly, very deep, very profound. Allah did not command Ibrahim, go kill your son. By the way, the Old Testament says this. And that's one of the things Kierkegaard, once again, if you had read the Quran, maybe he wouldn't have had this problem or the Judeo-Christian, because it is a, a problem that uh, Judeo-Christian philosophers you know, have problematized much more. And our um, tradition is not founded that problematic. One of the reasons being that in the Bible, it literally says, God is saying to Abraham, go kill your son. So now you get into the problem, okay? Is it moral to command uh, a father to kill his son, right? Is that something moral? And this goes back to the question, well, if you're following the Ash'ari paradigm, whatever Allah says is moral. If you're following the Mu'tazili paradigm, how could God say this when it would be immoral? However, we don't have to worry about this because Allah did not verbalize. Allah did not say to Ibrahim, do this. Rather, as I explained, he saw the vision and the vision indeed was enacted. Now, another interesting point that Ibn Taymiyyah and others mentioned, uh, and this is also uh, the Maturidi stance as well, that one's sense of right and wrong, the default is that generally it's right, but at the same time, the, the, the intellect or the mind or your understanding of morality could become corrupted. And that is because we are fragile creatures. And our sense of right and wrong, it can be subjective according to our culture and society. And the best example for this is that there are for many aspects of our existence, outlying tribes or disconnected civilizations that do things that 99% of the world thinks is unethical and immoral. But there is that less than 1% that is doing it, okay? And there are many examples, I mean, perhaps the most yeah, I think, gruesome is cannibalism, that it was practiced up until the 60s, 70s legally, meaning the governments allowed it in Papua New Guinea and other, other places. Now it is banned across the, the, the globe. Uh, technically it is banned, but you know that those small pockets were doing it up until one generation ago. You know, there's, uh, you know, documentaries on this. Or for example, um, there's some, uh, some pockets of civilizations in Nepal, some valleys of Nepal, where uh, polyandry is practiced. One woman has multiple husbands, okay? And in reality, this is so rare and atypical that it is simply unheard of across the globe except in small pockets. Okay, because the fitrah, common sense tells us that, you know, a mother, she needs to know, you know, who her husband, her, her, so that the children of the father are known. That you do not have polyandry. Polygamy was common and very common and is still common in many parts of the world. But polyandry is almost unheard of. It goes against the common sense, but there are people that do it. So there are aspects of uh, and, and I'm sure in some, you know, civilizations, certain at certain times, you know, murders are going to be allowed or whatnot that are uh, not going to be allowed in other civilizations. So the point being that in our understanding of right and wrong and good and evil, 
we do not privilege the mind to become absolutely infallible. And this is a key point. What we say is that good and evil, truth, you know, virtue, vice, these are things that are intrinsic in the concepts that are there. Allah created them within these concepts. And a pure mind and a sound intellect should be able to derive what is good and evil. But the ultimate arbiter is not the mind, it is the Sharia. The Sharia comes to confirm the true mind. But what if the mind is untrue? What if the mind is corrupted? What if our subjectivities have been changed because of our societies and cultures? In this case, we resort to the Sharia. And the, the best example that I have for the time and place we live in is the aspects of sexuality and morality that is being changed in our times. What defines a marriage and the genders and you know uh, same-sex issues and all of this, that if you look at it, cultural mores have changed radically in the last 20 years and especially in the last 10 years. And now we're even changing the concept of gender. And we do have a clash between what our society say is morally correct uh, and what the Sharia says. And classic case of tension, the mu'min understands that the mind is fallible and the mind can be corrupted. And it is very, very easy for a person born in a civilization where everybody's practicing an evil, that this person accepts an evil to be good or doesn't recognize it as evil. And this is where our iman is tested. And we have to respect the Sharia and follow the Sharia and understand our minds are fallible and the Sharia is infallible. And the last point here, that what about those people that uh, have never heard of the Sharia, they're disconnected from the Sharia, uh, what is to be said of them? Because once again, we get into this conundrum that will they be punished or not? Because if we say they are punished, there does seem to be an element of unfairness. Like, okay, if the mind can be corrupted and everybody's a cannibal in that island, then why should Allah punish them when there's no Sharia? But then if we say that there's no reason, uh, you know, that um, uh, the mind is independent and the mind has no say, then they're going to be completely forgiven. And so why give da'wah to them? They're going to be forgiven. So once again, Ibn Taymiyyah comes to the rescue and he says that we have to separate knowledge of right and wrong from accountability of right and wrong. This is a very brilliant move of Ibn Taymiyyah. We separate the knowledge from the accountability. And he says, knowledge is, yes, able to be derived from the mind, yes. And even in those civilizations, you will always find people who stand up and say, no, we shouldn't do that. Just like in the Quraysh, people said, we shouldn't kill these babies that are born, we shouldn't kill them. Just like in the Quraysh, there were people who said, we're not gonna practice idolatry. I am sure that in those uh, civilizations where cannibalism was practiced in those tribes, there must have been righteous people who stood up and said, no, it is unethical and immoral to eat other human beings because there's always gonna be right people. So knowledge of right and wrong, you will find it in some people, but accountability will not happen until the Sharia comes. Allah will not punish an entire nation or an entire tribe until the Sharia comes, وَمَا كُنَّا Allah says in the Quran, we are not going to punish anyone until the prophets come. Now this does not mean they're automatically forgiven. It means in this world, they will not be punished. As for the next world, Ibn Taymiyyah argued, there's gonna be a separate test and a separate trial for them. That's something separate on the day of judgment. So a civilization that has never heard of Islam, they're cut off from the revelation from Allah, 
technically they are obliged to act in a moral manner and they should live upright lives and they should not be guilty of murder and plundering and whatnot. They should know this from their minds. At the same time, in Allah's mercy, He shall not destroy them in this world and He will not punish them in this dunya until the messengers have come. Because it is the messengers that establish the evidence and it is the messengers that raise the bar and it is the messengers that convey the definitive revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If they don't hear the messengers, their minds should tell them right from wrong, but Allah will not hold them accountable in this world and they will be accountable on the day of judgment. So I hope that that answers uh, your question. So to summarize, the way that this world has been created, there are intrinsic values that are embedded in actions and in ideas. There are, it is evil, murder is evil, right? Telling the truth is good, it's, it's, it's intrinsic in there. And Allah blessed us with both a mind and a pure conscience. And the mind and conscience work in tandem and they should know the broad realities of good and evil. But they're not gonna know the details of worship and rituals, that's not gonna happen. And sometimes some exceptional things can happen where for certain commandments, like Ibrahim's commandment to sacrifice his son, where we, we, we might not understand because the goal is not the actual commandment, but the effort to put into the commandment. So yes, Good and evil are intrinsic, and the mind has the capability, but not infallible, fallible capability, and it is the sharia that comes to then affirm the correctness of the fallible mind. If it is correct, it's gonna match up. If it is incorrect, the fallible mind will submit to the infallible sharia in its understanding of virtue, and in Allah's infinite mercy, He shall not punish a nation that did not understand virtue just because uh, they went astray until the sharia and revelation has come. I hope that that answers the question in a manner that you understand. And this topic is indeed a very, very deep and theological and philosophical one that one can spend a lot more time about. But I hope inshallah in this there was sufficient uh, benefit for you. And this brings us to the conclusion of today's Q&A. Inshallah we'll see you next week. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. قد أفلح المؤمنون الذين هم في صلاتهم خاشعون والذين هم عن اللغو معرضون والذين هم للزكاة فاعلون والذين هم لفروجهم حافظون إلا على أزواجهم أو ما ملكت أيمانهم فإنهم غير ملومين